Well, now we have the privilege of turning to God's Word once again as we've been singing from God's Word and praying His promises. We now turn to 1 Corinthians 9. So we come to read now as the scripture lesson for the sermon, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. This is God's holy word as he gave to the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. So we come to read the inspired and therefore the inerrant word of the living God. 1 Corinthians 9 verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? The one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body. And bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's uh, briefly pray. Lord, we do pray now that as we come before you to hear this word proclaimed, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, that we would be built up through the exposition of your word in, in a greater understanding of it, that we might all the better serve you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember from my youth, uh, seeing uh, what was by then an already uh, old sketch from Saturday Night Live. I've used this as an illustration uh, on various occasions, so some of you uh, will have heard me talk about this before. The sketch was poking fun at a well-known commercial uh, for Wheaties breakfast cereal, and it featured Bruce Jenner. Uh, However confused some people might be now, back then everyone knew that Mr. Jenner was a man, and he had won gold medals at the 1976 Olympics, so this really dates the sketch here a bit. Uh, The Wheaties commercial Uh, seemed designed to make the consumer, especially a child watching Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, That's something I fear our young people miss out on, Saturday morning cartoons. They don't exist really anymore. Uh, It would make the the consumer believe, they seemed designed to make the consumer believe, that eating Wheaties would make you uh, a world-class athlete. And in fact, I... I remember it was common when I was little, if you just didn't seem quite strong enough for a task to turn that wrench or or to lift something heavy, somebody would say, well, you should have eaten your Wheaties. Um, Well, in this comedy sketch that was poking fun at that, John Belushi portrayed an Olympic gold medalist. Now, part of the reason that that was so funny was that uh, John Belushi was not known for being in great physical condition. Uh, He looked a little bit more like I'm built now as opposed to how I was built uh, when I was 22. And in this fake commercial, it made it sound like this this man's athletic prowess 
came from the fact that he ate lots of little chocolate donuts. And at the end of the sketch, uh, you would see Mr. Belushi there just stuffing his face with little chocolate donuts while he had a cigarette in his other hand. And of course, that was funny because of its absurdity. Uh, everyone knows that you don't get into the Olympics. You certainly don't win the gold by eating little chocolate donuts and smoking cigarettes. You don't get fit like that by eating Wheaties either. Uh, no, if you want to be a world-class athlete, you want to be successful at sports, you have to train and train hard. You give up things that you might prefer for the things that are actually best to meet your goal. You put yourself through painful experiences in order to have the muscle strength and the agility and the stamina and so on that you're going to need in order to win your competition. In today's reading, Paul uses that kind of athletic metaphor. The main point of today's sermon is really this exhortation, run to obtain the prize. There are several things to keep in mind in relation to that exhortation, though, that we see in this passage. One of them is that the prize in question is an imperishable crown of eternal glory. Not a temporary treasure on earth, but an imperishable crown. The second thing is that Paul makes a comparison here to the Isthmian games that took place near Corinth, and that's uh, going to be important. A third thing that we'll see is the exhortation, know your prize is certain. A fourth is also a comparison that Paul makes, in this case, to boxing. And then fifth, we learn that the way to run is to obtain that prize is to become self-disciplined. So let's start with the main point. Run to obtain the prize. In verse 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. In a foot race, ordinarily, how many runners win? Just one. Even in the modern Olympics, only one runner gets the gold medal. We're obviously excluding team sports and the occasional tie in this analogy. But ordinarily, you just get one runner who wins a foot race. And I guarantee you that in the Olympics today, the people who got silver and bronze were trying to get the gold. They were running to obtain the prize of first place. Modern Olympic medalists get some glory. Uh, they get some fame, some public notoriety. They sometimes get a lucrative endorsement deal. Uh, you too can be featured on a cereal box. Uh, all you have to do is become a star athlete. But no matter how wealthy or famous your athletic career might make you, the wealth and the fame will last only as long as your life in this world lasts. It's a short time. You'll die, this world will end. Well, then what? <clears throat> Who won gold for the 100-meter sprint in 1928? I don't see any eyes lighting up. Uh, not many people remember. Not many people care. I looked it up. It was a Canadian guy named Percy Williams. 
who won the Super Bowl in 1977? Probably not many people know. I didn't look that up. I have no clue. Neither do you, probably. There are a few sports statistics nerds who know who won the Super Bowl in 1977. That's about it. It still won't matter, ultimately. I wasn't watching the Super Bowl last week, but I knew who won when it happened because of all the fireworks that were going off in town here all of a sudden. But I probably won't remember that next year. Won't be very many years when most of you will remember. When was it that the Chiefs won the Super Bowl? Now, people work really hard to obtain such prizes, and they do not last. Now, God has a prize for his people that lasts. Now, before we get into the specifics about that prize and running for it, we need to note that Paul is not teaching that we earn the prize of salvation by our own efforts. In other places, as we saw back in chapter 3, for example, in verses 12 through 15, uh, we see that he teaches that though we don't earn our salvation, those who are saved can lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven based on how we serve Christ in the here and now. Christ alone gets us into heaven. He alone obtains forgiveness of our sins. And he rewards faithful service to him by those whose sins are forgiven. But in today's passage, we see that Paul is talking about a crown of glory that belongs not just to those who work harder as Christ's servants, but to all who are in Christ. And he wants us to work hard at striving for that crown. So you might say, well, you just contradicted yourself, Daniel. Didn't you say that Jesus says we're not to work for this? We don't earn this, only he can earn it, which is true. Well, Paul's not actually contradicting his teaching about grace. You cannot actually earn this crown of glory for yourself. Only Christ earns it for you. If your faith is in Christ, he has earned it for you. But Paul wants Christians to understand that individually we have no reason to believe that we are truly saved. You have no reason to believe that you are truly saved and thus shall receive that crown unless... You see the fruits of repentance and righteousness manifesting in your life. And so Paul wants you to work hard at manifesting those fruits. In Philippians 2.12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice it's not gain your own salvation, but outwardly work your salvation. That is, show through your works, show through your words and your deeds, that you are a person who possesses salvation. Never assume you are saved, but with fear and trembling, work hard to show that you are a person who is saved. And that's the only way you can have assurance. As James says in James 1.18, show me your faith without your works. And uh, he's implying you can't. But he says, and I will show you my faith by my works. Paul's saying the same thing in Philippians 2.12. And then in Philippians 2.13, he shows that such outward working of salvation is actually proof that God is working in you. And so you must truly be saved. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. 
when you have a will to do God's good pleasure, and when you are able to do God's good pleasure, that must mean the Holy Spirit is working in you to make those things happen. So the way that you have assurance that you are somebody who's actually saved is if you can outwardly work your salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus likewise taught in Mark 8, 34-37, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you want to know if you will receive the crown of glory that belongs to everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, that is a result of your salvation in Christ, show your faith by your works. Die to self and live to Christ. Or as Paul puts it in this passage, run to obtain the prize. Run as to obtain this prize. Well, that brings us to these five things we need to keep in mind in relation to that exhortation to run to obtain the prize. The first one is, the prize in question is, as I've already touched on, the imperishable crown of eternal glory. Paul writes in verse 25, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That'll touch on what we say later about self-control, about self-discipline being temperate in all things. Now they do it, so he's talking here about people who are running in, in earthly games. He says, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Matthew Henry wrote, Christians have an incorruptible crown in view, a crown of glory that never fadeth away, an inheritance incorruptible reserved in heaven for them. In Revelation 4.4 4 we read around the throne, it's talking about the throne of God in heaven, were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. There's a lot more to even to that verse by itself than I have time to unpack here, but suffice to say I think the best understanding of who those elders are in that view is that they're a representation of the church Particularly, they represent the church triumphant, as we would call it, the church in heaven, God's people dwelling in his glorious presence. And notice they are crowned with golden crowns, crowns of gold. Uh, earthly gold, of course, will pass away with this world, but uh, pure gold does not actually tarnish or corrode. And it symbolizes that which does not fade or wither away. The Lord promises a crown of unfading glory. For his people. As Paul says here, it is imperishable. It's incorruptible. It won't rot away. It won't rust. It won't decay. Well, that brings us to our second item to keep in mind, because that's deeply connected with this, which is number two. Paul is making a comparison here to the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games took place just outside of Corinth every two years. And these games were part of the Olympic cycle of what was known as the Pan-Hellenic Games. That just means the All-Greece Games. And it went through a four-year cycle. It was known as the Olympiad. And so the Olympiad was this four-year cycle. Uh, the first year of each Olympiad was marked by 
the Olympic Games, which took place at the city of Olympia, which was on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, the southern Greek peninsula. The second year of each Olympiad actually featured two sets of games, usually. They took place at slightly different times of the year, though they weren't too far from each other. The Isthmian Games took place at Corinth, and the Nemedian Games took place at a city to the, a little bit to the south of Corinth called Nemedia. The third year of the Olympiad featured the Pythian Games, which took place at Delphi, which was on the northern Greek peninsula, just north of the Gulf of Corinth. So uh, Olympia, where the Olympics took place, was a little bit to the southwest of Corinth, and Delphi was a ways north, to the northwest of Corinth. The third year of the Olympiad featured the Pythian, uh, or excuse me, yeah, that was the Pythian Games at Delphi. And the fourth year, then, you'd come back around uh, and you'd have the uh, Isthmian Games and the Nemedian Games again. So there would be uh, the second and fourth year, so each year before and after uh, the Olympics, there would be two sets of games most years. People didn't run in the races of those games half-heartedly. They ran hard, and they trained hard to be able to win. So ahead of time, they would work really, really hard. As Paul says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So Paul's referring to something that would have been well known to the Corinthians. They would have seen this happening every couple of years. So since Paul was there for quite a while, we... At least one of these games must have taken place while he was there. And then in verse 25, he says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Again, no one trains for the Olympics by eating little chocolate donuts and smoking cigarettes, right? Uh, <clears throat> I doubt many of them eat Wheaties either. Uh, no, if, if you want to win or even place in the modern Olympics, you work hard. You sacrifice. You give up foods you like. You give up leisure time. You give up social activities. Young Olympic hopefuls take time away from education and, and from preparing for a career. Why? So they can condition their bodies to be just a few seconds faster the next time. To be just a little more flexible than they were last week. To be able to run just a couple of feet farther at top speed before needing to slow down. Today you might do all that for a gold or a silver or a bronze medal, but again, they're really going for the gold. You might get some product endorsements. If you're wise, you'll invest whatever money you get well and you might be set up for life, financially speaking. But it won't last any longer than this life. In ancient times, athletes worked just as hard. They made just as many sacrifices as modern Olympians do. And you know what they competed for? Here's your list of possible prizes if you were competing in the four-year cycle of games. If you won at the Olympics, you got a wreath of olive leaves. If you won at the Pythian Games, you got a laurel wreath. It was also common to give a crown of laurel leaves to victors in battle and that sort of thing. So this is where the, 
the expression resting on your laurels comes from, the notion that you had some past success and you're sort of living the rest of your life based on that past success. If you won at the Nemedian Games, you got a wreath of wild cherry leaves. If you won at the Isthmian Games there at Corinth, you got a wreath of pine, or in some periods of history, celery. How does that sound? Now, if any of you or someone you know had a real Christmas tree this past Christmas, how's it holding up right now? These things wither. Can you imagine that? Working hard for years and years and then getting to run your race and you win and you get something that a few weeks later is just falling apart and withering. Sure, there was some public acclaim. There were some social benefits from having one. But the evidence of your victory was going to rot away. I don't know if that uh, had something to do with with the ancient mindset of maybe men not taking too much glory for themselves. You know, even the, the great uh, victors of battles who would be given a triumph when they were entering the city of Rome and they would have this great parade and all of the slaves they captured in war and all of their soldiers were there and all the booty that they captured would be with them. And ordinarily they would be riding in on a chariot and there would be a slave whose job it was to ride on that chariot with him and whisper in his ear, you are but a man. I don't know if maybe that was part of the same ancient mindset. You don't want this to go to people's head for too long. Athletes in Paul's day worked so hard for an extremely temporary prize. Paul says in the latter part of verse 25, Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. How much more is it worth working for a crown that will never fade? If such a perishable crown was worth working so hard for, how much more is it worth hard work to have an assurance that Christ has already earned an imperishable crown for you? How much more is it worth the hard work to show that you are running toward an eternal crown of glory? Even Paul did not take such glory for granted. He didn't say, I'm set, and spiritually speaking, rest on his laurels. Right? He worked hard to show forth his salvation with fear and trembling too. As he says at the end of verse 27, Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. There he's continuing the athletic metaphors that he were disqualified from the race. Now the comparison with the earthly games can only go so far. One major difference is that at the earthly games, as we pointed out, there could only be one winner of the competition. But Paul teaches in number three here, our third point, that you can know your prize is certain. It isn't as if only one of us can win. The first part of verse 26, therefore, run thus not with uncertainty. Run thus, I should say, not with uncertainty. If you are bearing fruit of truly being in Christ, then you can be certain that you are truly saved. So we don't assume we're saved, but if we're showing the fruits, then we can have real assurance of salvation. And if you are truly saved, 
then you will receive that crown of glory. So it's not with uncertainty, Paul says, that we run. It's not about a competition between believer and believer as if I get the crown of glory and that means you can't get it. The comparison is meant to teach us to be self-disciplined, as we'll get to here in spirit, the way an athlete is in body. So that brings us to number four. Paul offers a comparison to boxing, and then we'll get to the self-discipline after this. But, but this leads right into the notion of self-discipline. He offers here comparison not only to the Olympic type of games, the Isthmian games that took place at Corinth, but also to boxing. The second part of verse 26, Thus I fight not as one who beats the air. So he's not just hitting emptiness, right? He's not flailing his arms about and not actually accomplishing anything, spiritually speaking. He's doing the real thing. He's working hard at training spiritually, at subduing his earthly passions, he notes. He's working hard at that training. If he were a boxer, he'd be hitting the punching bag. He'd be sparring with other boxers. He'd be lifting weights. He'd be doing all of the the Rocky montage, right? All the things that you see when you watch a film like that. All of the tremendous workout, everything that's meant to increase not only his strength, but his stamina and his precision. And he's doing meaningful work to get himself into better and better spiritual shape. Which then brings us to number five. The way then to run as to obtain the prize is to be self-disciplined. Christians need to become more and more self-disciplined, spiritually speaking. In verse 25, he says, The athlete is temperate in all things. He's self-controlled in all things. He doesn't just do whatever he pleases, but he thinks, Will this help me with my goal? He only does those things that are going to help condition his body to win. Verse 27, But I condition my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. So when he talks here about conditioning his body, he's not talking about uh, doing more sit-ups. He's talking about bringing his fleshly passions under control so that they don't get in the way of his spiritual goals. Just as the physical athlete is physically self-disciplined, denying his preferences in order to obtain his goal, so must the servant of Christ be spiritually self-disciplined, forsaking personal preferences and momentary pleasures and liberties for the sake of better things. In 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul writes... For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So uh, there are good reasons to engage in physical bodily exercise. And he says that profits, but it profits only a little compared to what we're talking about here. There are good reasons that Christians should strive to be in good physical shape so that we're subduing our, our gluttonous desires and that sort of thing. And, but that profits only for the health of our bodies in this life. 
But godliness, Paul says, is profitable for all things having promise of this life, so it has rewards here and now, and for that which is to come, Paul says. John Calvin comments on Paul's words here. For he declares that he does not indulge self, but restrains his inclinations, which cannot be accomplished unless the body is tamed, and by being held back from its inclinations, is habituated to subjection like a wild and refractory steed. So in other words, he's saying train yourself, train your earthly passions, right? Subdue those. Train yourself not to expect gratification of mere earthly desires in the way a wild horse can be tamed and get used to being used by its owner for purposes other than what it wants to do. So Paul's saying here, be self-controlled. So run as to obtain that prize that God has in store for all who are in Christ Jesus. Don't do the spiritual equivalent of eating little chocolate donuts and smoking cigarettes. Right? Work hard at this. Deny self. Discipline yourself not to expect instant gratification. Oh, that's something our culture has really trained us for, isn't it? We've got instant gratification in so many ways. And so it's very easy for us to think that that's the way things should come spiritually as well. But train yourself not to expect instant gratification. As an athlete would do, practice self-control. Condition yourself to be in shape to pursue spiritual things. If athletes deny themselves in order to be good enough in good enough physical condition to win a prize that's going to perish, then you should be able to condition yourself to pursue a prize which will not perish. And that should encourage you to do that. Paul says, run to obtain that prize. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ has already earned the prize for us, but ask that you would help us not to take that for granted, but to be working our salvation outwardly with fear and trembling. Let us run as to obtain that prize, working outwardly these things that we might be well-conditioned in spirit to receive that spiritual prize as we pray in the name of the one who has purchased it for us, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.